Welcome to the Quad Pod, the Regis University Magazine podcast. In this episode, we share stories from our latest issue, Fall and Winter 2021. You'll hear our cover story, Protecting God's Creatures, a look inside a Regis veteran's battle to save cheetah cubs. And these stories, the story of a little cemetery on campus and its move many, many years ago. A peace activist and former priest helps young people discern their conscience. An alum brings her decades of communications experience to help those struggling with poverty. A World War II veteran and former Regis instructor is presented with medals earned 75 years ago. How Regis graduates incorporate Jesuit education to help a local middle school's philosophy and mission. Turmoil and tragedy test a local police chief's leadership. And we end with words of wisdom from our favorite fox, Reggie, the Regis mascot. Wildlife. Counseling student uses army ranger tactics to track cheetah poachers. Story written and read by Karen Ajay. From his basement in Denver, in between being dad to two little boys and working on a master's degree in counseling at Regis, Tim Spala saves cheetahs. He does this with the passion and intensity he once brought to untangling terror networks. In fact, rescuing infant cheetahs from international wildlife smugglers requires many of the same skills he honed as an army ranger and as a counterterrorism intelligence specialist. When his first son, Harrison, was born six years ago, Spala was thrilled but he wasn't ready to change his wandering ways. He said, I missed most of Harry's first two years living in a stick hut in Africa. It took his son Teddy's arrival in 2018 to ground Spala at home. He said, I held him in the delivery room and it hit me. My place is with these boys. I didn't get it the first time around, but I got it the second time. I had to find a way to make a difference overseas and not sacrifice my kids getting to have a dad. He found that, and in the process, might also have found a way to preserve some of the planet's most majestic species so they'll be around when Harry and Teddy are grown. With his business partner, Tomas Mollet, he created the Horn of Africa Conservation Alliance in 2015, the organization which the National Geographic Society has supported since 2019, is dedicated to rescuing trafficked wildlife and disrupting their illegal sales. The work starts on the ground where wildlife poaching begins. Then, investigators work their way up the chain, following poachers, seeing where money changes hands, learning where and how the contraband moves from place to place, and discovering the ultimate destination. It's a lot like what Spala did in pursuit of the militant Islamist terrorist group Al-Shabaab, or when he was tracking Joseph Kony, the Ugandan terrorist who led the Lord's Resistance Army. It was Army intelligence work that first introduced Spala to wildlife trafficking networks. Tracking the movement of elephant herds offered clues about the movement of the Lord's Resistance Army because the group was poaching elephants, in part for their meat and in part to sell ivory to finance their terror activities. The Horn of Africa Conservation Alliance now focuses on disrupting the pipeline that takes infant cheetahs from the Horn of Africa into Middle Eastern countries where they are prized luxury items. Spala said, they are incredibly beautiful animals, adding that that is likely why they have become status symbols among the very rich. Cheetahs also have, wrongly, gained a reputation for being tame. Patricia Tricarachi said, they do become habituated more easily and by instinct they prefer flight to fight. Tricarachi is the illegal wildlife tracking assistant at Colorado State's Natural Resource Ecology Laboratory. International cheetah trade has been banned since 1975. 
Nevertheless, at least 3,600 live cheetahs were sold between 2010 and 2019, according to a study published this year. Tricarache and Spala agree that fighting corruption and endemic poverty in African countries is key to saving cheetahs. A farmer might sell one cub for $50 to $100, Tricarache said. She said selling three cubs is equivalent to six months' pay for some of those farmers. Typically, an entire litter of cheetah cubs is taken, often while the mother is out hunting. For every 10 cubs taken, seven will not survive the journey. Working with local populations is crucial to the Horn of Africa's mission, Spala said. He and Malay have no intention of imposing their wildlife protection will on Somaliland's residents. He said, we recruit within the country. It has to be grassroots, and we have to leverage local government resources. Spala said saving cheetahs requires buy-in from those who share the animal's turf. He said, we meet them where they are, not where we envision they should be. Then we do the education. We tell them this is what we see going on, and this is how we see connecting it to your livelihood, and this is the difference we can make if you're willing to work with us. The world's fastest land mammal has not been able to outrun human predators. Cheetahs have vanished from more than 90% of their original habitat. Official estimates put the number of remaining cheetahs at around 7,000, and the species is officially listed as vulnerable by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. However, based on more recent surveys, conservation groups are calling for cheetahs to be declared endangered. The Horn of Africa faces environmental degradation, and the feline carnivores have a habit of killing sheep, Spala said, which makes them a target of shepherds trying to protect their livelihoods. Although the Somaliland government has committed to helping protect wildlife, the country is contending with climate change, post-conflict economy, and social issues, and Spala said there is not a lot of hope for these animals. But there has been progress. Some countries in the Middle East, including the United Arab Emirates, have officially banned private cheetah ownership. At the University of Northern Iowa, Spala watched the United States military invade Baghdad, knowing that his older brother was part of the operation. He said, It broke my heart that there was nothing I could do to protect him. The one thing he could do, he figured, was join the army. So, he said, pumped up on bravado and patriotism, he found a recruiting office and signed up. By 2006, he was an army ranger working in intelligence, conducting everything from battlefield interrogations to forensic evidence collection to discover not just the identities of those who planted bombs, but to track down those who gave the orders for terrorist acts and those who financed them. Saving wildlife has another feature in common with stopping terrorism. Both are long-shot efforts. But Spala feels he has to try. He said, I do it for my kids. I spent 10 years in Africa and saw these beautiful, powerful creatures. If someone doesn't take action, a lot of them will disappear and my kids won't have a chance to see them. Saving an entire species and being a stay-at-home dad to two young boys would be more than enough for most people, but somehow Spala works in earning a master's degree too. He said, I never had a therapist at the Veterans Affairs who was a combat veteran. There are a lot of amazing therapists there, but nobody who knew what it was like to be there. As people who've been in combat, we pick up on that disconnect between us and them. Spala said bridging that disconnect is nothing short of a calling. After he finishes his master's degree at Regis this year, he plans to begin work on a doctorate in trauma-specific therapy. When Teddy was born in 2018 and Spala was determined to run his wildlife-saving operation from home, he decided it was also time to pursue the advanced degrees that would launch his counseling career. 
As a neonatal intensive care nurse, his wife Ashley could work anywhere. So the couple decided they wanted to live and raise their kids in Denver, and Spala applied to graduate programs here. He said, I am so fortunate that Regis was the only place that took me. I ended up exactly where I needed to be. I cannot imagine a better program. My professors have changed my life. A lot of people may fantasize about thwarting terrorism or saving wildlife or healing trauma's wounds. Few people actually make the leap from imagining to doing any of those things. Spala isn't sure what it is in his DNA or his wiring that propelled him to tackle all three. He said, I seem to find problems that seem impossible to solve and then just throw myself at them. I do fail. I fail all the time. I've always felt my calling in this life is to find the hard problems and do something about it. That's the example I want to set for my kids. The work helps him heal as well. He said, there is a lot of difficult stuff I carry around with me on a daily basis. The act of trying to make the world a better place helps me sleep at night. The Little Cemetery That Moved. The Journey of 43 Regis Jesuits and One Irish Boy. Story by Kim O'Neill, read by Marcus Canodal. It was a bright May afternoon in 1900 when Jack McDonnell walked out of his class in Main Hall into the sunshine and headed north across the campus of the College of the Sacred Heart, as Regis was known then. Jack, 16, a popular boy with a lyric Irish accent, was a third-year student in the high school that, in those days, was called the Academic Department of Sacred Heart College. He'd just returned to the Northwest Denver campus after a visit to his hometown in Ireland, where his father lived and where his mother had recently died. No one knows where Jack was headed that afternoon. Wherever it was, he didn't make it. Just north of Main Hall, Jack collapsed. Distraught classmates rushed to his side, and Reverend Modestus Isaguire, who was nearby, knelt beside Jack, trying to revive him but soon realized all he could do was offer absolution. According to a daily log of campus events called the College Diary, Jack, lying prone in the dirt, died between the college, main hall, and the play hall, as the gym was known then, at 3.20 p.m. The cause was a violent hemorrhage from the lungs. In five minutes, it was all over. The school's physician, Dr. James Devlin, arrived, pronounced Jack dead, and said even if he had gotten there earlier, there was simply nothing he could have done to save the boy. After his death, the diary noted that Jack had weak lungs and had been sick a month before his death. So two days later, on May 12, 1900, John J. Jack McDonnell became the first and only student to be buried in Regis's cemetery. When the four-story building called Main Hall was built in 1887, it housed classrooms and was home to the boys and young men, perfect gentlemen, as the 1900 college catalog stipulated, who came to study there. It also was home to the Jesuit priests and brothers who taught there. Of course, the priests who devoted their lives to educating young men would eventually die. And so, Reverend Dominic Pantanella, one of the college's founders, created a cemetery on the Regis campus. Photographs and maps from the turn of the last century show that the little cemetery, set off by a low fence, sat beneath a row of then-young trees of where St. Peter Claver Hall stands now. 
Regis's little cemetery of the Jesuits, as it was known, eventually was the final resting place for 43 priests, lay teachers, and brothers, and one student, Jack McDonnell. Jack had come to Sacred Heart in 1898, and some speculated that his family might have hoped Denver's dry climate would benefit his health. The college catalog that year indicates that in 1900, most Sacred Heart students were from Colorado. A handful, though, came from as far away as Iowa, Michigan, even Canada. But no one else had traveled as far as Jack to master the liberal arts on the beautiful knoll overlooking the Clear Creek Valley, as the catalog described the Sacred Heart campus. Over the years, the story has been repeated that Jack's father couldn't afford to have his son's body shipped home to Ireland. But that seems unlikely, given that Jack had just traveled back to County Mayo for a visit. And, according to the 1901 Irish census, his father, Michael McDonnell, was a merchant and a landowner. His uncle, meanwhile, was a wealthy senator from Dublin, not to mention the fact that Jack's family was able to pay Sacred Heart's $110 cost per term, the equivalent of about $3,500 today. The real reason Jack's body stayed in Denver might have had more to do with the nature of his death, possibly caused by tuberculosis, known then as consumption and fears about disease transmission if the body were shipped across the ocean. Whatever the reason, the Jesuits agreed to bury Jack in their little campus cemetery. On May 12th, according to the day's entry in the diary, the entire school and members of the community gathered in the college chapel for a service witnesses agreed would have brought comfort to Jack's father. A high requiem mass was sung, led by the college president, Reverend John J. Brown. Pantanella gave a sermon. Then, eight acolytes, pallbearers, and friends walked the body to the cemetery. In June, a large tombstone, larger than the ones that adorned the Jesuits' graves, was added, and Jack's grave was set off from the Jesuits by an iron fence. Most of the others buried in the little cemetery were marked by a modest stone, each inscribed with the deceased's name, birth date, and death date in Latin. But those stark facts don't tell the full story of the remarkable lives and notable accomplishments of many of those buried there. Men like Reverend Armand Forstall, a professor of math, chemistry, physics, and engineering, who also directed the college's assaying department, he was renowned for creating and directing the seismic station on campus and for bringing one of the nation's only seismographs to reach us. At his death in 1948, the Bulletin of the Seismological Society of America noted, almost at the exact time of Father Forstall's death, the large Dominican Republic earthquake began recording on the Regis seismographs. There also was Brother Ben Tavani, who created the original Grotto of Our Lady, adorning the shrine with trinkets. His name is carved into a stone on the recently remodeled grotto, now called Our Lady of Loretto. And Reverend Conrad Bilgery, whose discovery of mammoth fossils at a Weld County site known as Dent made news and made history. The March 15, 1935 edition of the student newspaper reported that Bilgery, with a corps of enthusiastic students from Regis, explored the mammoth bed at Dent from September to November 1932, when the approach of winter halted them. The Dent site eventually yielded bones from 14 mammoths, two of which were complete enough to be reconstructed for display. One of them went on display at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, making that museum one of the first in the country to exhibit a largely restored mammoth skeleton. 
Records show the oldest birth date on any tombstone in the little cemetery was that of Reverend John Gita, who was born in 1828. But being older than his Sacred Heart colleagues was hardly Gita's greatest claim to fame. According to Georgetown University's online archives, Gita was a philosophy professor on the Washington, D.C. campus in April 1965. And in the chaotic aftermath of President Abraham Lincoln's assassination, Gita was mistaken for John Wilkes Booth and arrested. The Jesuit priest was held in a military camp in Virginia until the real assassin was caught on a farm in Virginia. And, ultimately, Pantanella, the priest credited with building the College of the Sacred Heart and who set aside land for the cemetery, also would be laid to rest there. But those 44 souls would not rest there for eternity. In 1956, college leaders decided Regis had to grow, and the little cemetery, which by then had fallen into disrepair and become the frequent target of vandals, stood in the way. The Archdiocese of Denver agreed to allow the graves to be moved to Mount Olivet Cemetery in Wheat Ridge. So on September 27, 1958, backhoes arrived on campus. By the end of the day, 44 graves had been dug up and 44 caskets were taken from Regis and moved to Mount Olivet Cemetery, probably by train. Officials at Mount Olivet could find no record of how these bodies were moved, but carrying them by train would have been a logical choice since the campus and Mount Olivet were close to railroad tracks. The 43 men and one boy were reburied in new graves, and new grave markers were placed for each. The graves of these pioneer Jesuits and an Irish boy from County Mayo may be visited in the Catholic clergy section of Mount Olivet Cemetery, not far from the chapel where notable bishops of the Archdiocese of Denver lie. Most of the original stones are lost to time and weather and progress, but according to the Regis student newspaper, The Highlander, a few have been uncovered over the years in the ground between Loyola Hall and the Felix Pompanillo Family Science Center. Those tombstones now lie beneath Main Hall, tucked away in a basement room. Through the years, ghost stories regarding movements of spirits on the upper floors of Main Hall, Carroll Hall, or the campus grounds have been reported by campus newspapers or passed along by faculty and staff. These sightings may or may not be related to the spirits left behind in the absent cemetery or of those who passed away on the campus grounds. Faculty Focus Michael Baxter, Peace Activist and Director of Catholic Studies. Story written and read by Sarah Knuth. Just before the 1990 Gulf War, Regis Director of Catholic Studies Michael Baxter assembled a team of counselors and traveled to Germany. In bars and back rooms, Baxter and the team spoke with U.S. soldiers who were considering objecting to the war. The soldiers were weeks from being redeployed to the Persian Gulf and to a different era than when they enlisted during the Cold War. As part of the process, the soldiers met with the group to discern their consciences and fill out military paperwork. Their efforts were ultimately unsuccessful. In 1990, President George H.W. Bush instituted the Stop Loss Program, which retained service members past their original end-of-service date, and conscientious objectors were met with resistance by the military. But Baxter continued his work. When he and the counselors returned home, they started a campaign of letter-writing to the military in support of the objectors. Baxter said, I was always motivated by the idea that someone is caught in the machine of war and has qualms about it and no one wants to hear it. The church teaches that this is an issue that one must discern by conscience. I thought the church should be there. Baxter, a former priest, joined the Regis faculty in 2015. 
between earning a PhD in theology and ethics from Duke University in 1996 and teaching, Baxter dedicated a large part of his career to counseling soldiers. He got his start in 1980 in Colorado Springs when he was in his novitiate, a period of prayer and community for those intending to become Jesuit priests. There, he encountered peace activists. He said, In listening to some of the people in Colorado Springs and their view on the war and violence and the teachings of Jesus, I was struck by its truthfulness. After President Jimmy Carter reactivated draft registration, Baxter joined a group to, quote, leaflet post offices inviting young men who had to register for the draft to consider the moral implications of doing so. That's how he got directly into draft and military counseling. Since then, Baxter has met with soldiers who have been deployed in war zones from Kuwait to Afghanistan. In 2001, before 9-11, he helped restart the Catholic Peace Fellowship, which supports conscientious subjectors through counseling, education, and advocacy. He served as the director of the organization until 2012. 20 years after 9-11, and as the last troops left Afghanistan in the fall, Baxter, who lost a seminary classmate at the Pentagon during the attacks, was sought out by Catholic media to reflect on the war. In an interview with the Catholic news website Crux, he shared the sadness he felt for 9-11 victims, the service members who were killed or had difficult time returning, and the legacy of the war. In the years after 9-11, the war often made its way into classroom discussions. At Regis, Baxter's courses have included peace and justice in Catholic social thought and Catholic social justice. Often, at the beginning of the semester, Baxter will ask students to name countries that border Afghanistan. It's rare when civilian students can. Throughout his career, his position on war has remained the same. Baxter said, We were always anti-war, but we don't say we counsel pacifism or objection. We counsel young people and help them discern their consciences. Our phrase was, we stop the war one by one by one. It's work, it takes time, but it's amazing. And it's hopeful too. Turmoil and Tragedy Test Police Chief's Leadership. Story written by Karen Ajay, read by Marcus Canodal. Arvada, Colorado Police Chief Link Strait calls police work an incredibly honorable profession and one that can be immensely satisfying. But even in the best of times, it can be taxing, dangerous work. The last year or so has hardly been the best of times, not for police in general, and not for Arvada police specifically. In June, Arvada police officer Gordon Beasley, a school resource officer widely remembered as kind, caring, and humble, was ambushed and murdered by a man who investigators believe set out to kill police. Compounding the tragedy, a bystander who shot Beasley's killer was then shot to death during the chaos when officers arrived and fired, thinking the man with the gun was the original shooter. Strait earned a master's degree in organizational leadership at Regis, but it's hard to imagine a classroom curriculum that prepares anyone to lead a department through the aftermath of such a tragedy. The police department wanted to honor Beasley and his family, but beyond that, Strait recognized the need to acknowledge the community's grief and its support of the police department. To move the police department forward through such a wrenching period, we had to pause and try to get perspective on what the organization has gone through and recognize that this affects people differently. Strait joined the suburban Denver City's police department as a patrol officer in 1987 after graduating from Northern Arizona University. In 2018, city leaders conducted a nationwide search to replace departing chief Don Wick before realizing the right man for the job was already in their department. Police work has never been easy, but it perhaps has never been harder than in the months since Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin 
put his knee on the neck of George Floyd and held it there until Floyd died. That killing of a black man by a white officer sparked unprecedented outrage and prompted a rethinking of the fundamental structure of police departments, from how resources are allocated to how officers are recruited and trained. That's fine with straight. I don't think anybody is against police reform. That is something every department should be interested in from the get-go. Still, he doubts those chanting, defund the police, truly would be happy if police departments dissolved. And he would remind vocal critics that police is not a single entity, but thousands of departments, large and small, each with its own culture, policies, and leadership. Arvada Police Department's culture, Strait said, emphasizes nonviolent confrontations and doesn't condone racial profiling. The department exceeds state standards in its de-escalation training, and it forbids use of chokeholds, hog-tying, and other controversial restraints. Police departments increasingly are asked to serve as mental health counselors and social workers, and Arvada Police Department is no exception. In the past 20 years, Strait estimates his department has seen a tenfold increase in mental health-related calls. There, too, Strait said, Arvada Police Department is ahead of the game. As much as any police department can be, given the lack of community resources for mental health treatment. For five years, Arvada Police Department has had a team of four co-responders who accompany officers when a call involves someone struggling with mental health. The responders help defuse the situation and connect those in need with whatever resources are available. The department's core unit is dedicated to working with people experiencing homelessness, Strait said. They try to engage with them, get them plugged into resources. Contrary to the national narrative that paints police officers and homeless as adversaries, a lot of these people look at officers as their only friends. Oftentimes, officers are the only ones who will engage with them. Arvada is one of the few police departments in Colorado that requires officers to have a college degree. That's one aspect of a tough eight-month screening and training process that rejects all but about 10% of applicants in the first round, Strait said. Still, he acknowledges that weeding out all the Derek Chauvins of the world isn't an exact science. You can't catch everything, he said, so there has to be culture that supports the idea that that unacceptable behavior will not be tolerated by fellow officers. He credits his predecessor with knocking down the so-called blue wall of silence, which prevents officers from speaking up about bad behavior, and said his goal is to make sure that the wall never gets rebuilt. When Strait set his sights on leading the department, he figured if every patrol officer had a college diploma, then he ought to earn an advanced degree. At Regis, he chose a field outside of law enforcement because it offered a chance to explore different ideas and practices. And sitting in classrooms with accountants, financial officers, and nonprofit administrators provided those varied perspectives. I feel fortunate in having chosen Regis, he said. I got exactly what I was looking for a really good foundation in leadership that challenged some of my other notions and made me rethink what I thought I knew about leadership. Despite the difficulties, Strait said, he wouldn't hesitate to recommend police work to anyone considering it. Our communities truly rely on us and need us. I have met the most incredibly selfless people because I've been in this profession. Of course, it's not a job everyone should take on, especially now, Strait said. I just don't know how to prepare new recruits to grow the calluses needed to withstand the criticism. Helping students find direction. How Jesuit education guides Compass Academy's philosophy and mission. Story written and read by Sarah Knuth. During the first week of school, 
Sixth grader Pablo Bermudez brought a bag full of his favorite things to class, a trophy he won with his football team, a Denver Broncos jersey, and a book his teachers in Spain made for him before he moved to the United States. He was most excited to share his Spain soccer jersey, making sure to point out that the country's national team won the 2010 World Cup. When he showed his class at Compass Academy his favorite Harry Potter book, it sparked a conversation. Teacher Raquel Jacinto asked her class at the Denver Charter School a question in English and in Spanish. Have you seen the movies? Some students responded in Spanish, others in English. For the group of bilingual students, the activity helped set the tone for the rest of the school year. Regardless of grade level, all Compass Academy students start their day with the same class, similar to a homeroom, that focuses on social, emotional, and academic development. In Sarah Craig's class, students talked about strategies they can use to calm themselves. In Daylin Bradshaw's class, they reflected on what self-awareness means. Located on a stretch of Denver's South Federal Boulevard that is home to many immigrants and financially struggling families, Compass Academy's philosophy is to celebrate its 6th, 7th, and 8th graders' cultural differences, acknowledge their individual strengths and learning styles while building academic achievement and creating what the school website calls Pathways from Poverty to Post-Secondary Success. They're doing it with a lot of help from Regis graduates. Jacinto, Craig, and Bradshaw are Regis alumni, as is Brandon Jones, the school's director of academics and development. The school, which receives financial support from the Oak Foundation through Johns Hopkins University and City Year AmeriCorps, has a close partnership with the university. Jones teaches a seminar course through City Year, a program that sends young adults for a year into underserved classrooms across the country. The course is part of an alternative teacher licensure program authorized by Regis that gives city year participants the opportunity to take Regis courses remotely. In addition to the program, traditional Regis education students often complete their required practicum hours at Compass Academy, and some go on to teach there. In addition to the program, traditional Regis education students often complete their required practicum hours at Compass Academy, and some go on to teach there. Students come from around the world and come with diverse needs. As of the 2020 to 2021 school year, Compass's free and reduced lunch rate, a measure that serves as an indication of poverty, was among the highest in the state at 92%. All but 23 of the school's 287 students qualify for lunch assistance. The school teaches students from around the world, from Mexico, Central America, and South America, to China, Korea, and countries in Africa. More than half of the students are learning English as a second language. The school is biliterate, which means non-native English speakers learn English and deepen their academic skills in Spanish, according to the school. Students who speak English receive Spanish instruction. Compass also uses an integrated academic and social-emotional model, which helps students master academic content through critical thinking, collaborative work, and effective communication. The Regis Educator Pipeline Brandon Jones, who graduated from Regis in 2005, has helped nearly 40 Regis students and alumni gain classroom experience in the five years he has been with the school. For Jones, the experience at Regis helped shape him as a teacher and administrator who works with underserved kids. He said, I am a huge proponent of Regis education. We're creating a pipeline back and forth because when it comes time to hire, I prefer to hire people that I've met before who are interested. I know how Regis teaches and that's what we expect here. As a member of the administration, Jones makes decisions that help guide beginning teachers. It wasn't always that way for Jones. He joked that if he returned to his high school in Loveland, Colorado, and told his former teachers that he is a school administrator who runs a successful education consulting business on the side, quote, they might pass out. He said, I was not very studious when I was younger. 
I thought I was a basketball player and there was nothing else in life besides basketball. But through chance, he had the opportunity to work with disadvantaged kids, first as a high school volunteer, then as a student at Regis, where he also played basketball. Later, he became a teacher, and eventually he worked with disadvantaged schools in California as a teacher and then a principal. While he was there, he started training teachers to work with underserved students and turned it into a consulting business. After moving his family back to Colorado, he took a job at Compass at a time when the school was under the direct threat of being shut down. Five years later, many of the teachers who were trained by Jones during his first year are still with the school, he said. His experience at Regis meant so much to Jones that when he moved back to Colorado from California, the university was one of his first stops. Jones said, I feel like I owe a little bit back to them for what they were able to teach and give to me. I should open the door for them the same way Regis opened the door for me. Jesuit Foundation sustains Regis grads in a tough year. The first year of teaching is always rough. For Jacinto, being a first-year teacher during a pandemic sometimes felt impossible. But supportive colleagues helped. And for Jacinto, support stretched beyond Compass. Almost every other week, she heard from Regis faculty, including Interim Regis College Dean and Division of Education Professor Heidi Barker, who called her to see how she was progressing. Jacinto said, No one really prepared us for what happened during COVID-19, but I still have very strong connections with a lot of my professors back at Regis who are still checking in on me. Jones said he's grateful for a similar experience he had at Regis. The faculty were different than those he experienced elsewhere. Jones said, I tell people when I hire them, everyone thinks back to high school when that one teacher had an impact on them. We're not hiring for one teacher to have that impact. We're hiring for every one of you to have an impact. And that's modeled off the impact those professors had on me. It wasn't just one of them. It was all of them. A voice for those struggling with poverty. Story written by Karen Ajay, read by Marcus Canodal. When Elizabeth Monahan applied to become managing editor of the Denver Voice, she knew that with her decades of communications experience, she could contribute plenty to the monthly publication for and by people experiencing homelessness and poverty. What she didn't expect was how much those people could teach her. A product of Catholic schools who earned a Master of Arts in Communications at Regis, Monahan's broad experience includes working for Silicon Valley tech companies, editing and engineering publication, and writing for neighborhood newspapers. But The Voice provided a whole different kind of experience. Part of the international network of street papers, The Voice provides income for those struggling with housing instability a current roster of about 100 vendors, down from a pre-pandemic high of 200, buy those copies of the paper for 25 cents. Then vendors sell papers throughout Denver for suggested donations of $2. They keep the difference. They use it to buy groceries and other necessities, Monahan said. The pandemic forced The Voice to shift focus, seeking grants and donations to help vendors when they could not sell papers. Monahan credits executive director Jennifer Sabold with successfully steering The Voice through that period. As managing editor, Monahan works with journalist contributors who often uncover important stories, many of which get picked up by Denver Media. She has worked to raise The Voice's news profile, tightened editorial standards, and pushed to feature news stories on its website, denvervoice.org. One thing that won't change. Each issue offers opportunities for vendors to contribute. We always have the Ask a Vendor feature, she said. Vendors also write, in your own words, about their experiences. 
The September issue featured a former vendor who now owns a landscaping company. Current vendors include a woman whose meth addiction upended her life. Monahan said she was at one of the shelters in Boulder and saw something about The Voice. She signed up and hasn't looked back. That was about 15 years ago. The Voice is not a service agency, but does connect vendors with organizations that can help with everything from getting legal identification, many vendors don't have a driver's license, to being added to waiting lists for subsidized housing. When needed, Monahan said, we can also introduce them to drug and alcohol counselors. Monahan said it wasn't a calling that led her to The Voice, but something more practical. After a divorce altered her financial situation, she needed a second job. In the past, Monahan said, I would see the people selling the paper on the 16th Street Mall and I'd be very busy looking away or rushing past vendors. In two years with The Voice, she said, I've learned so much. I've always known I'm very blessed, but it's different when I see what these people are going through. One bad thing, a bad decision or an illness or a partner who is abusive, and it could be any of us. Recognition at last. World War II veteran and former Regis instructor presented with medals earned 75 years ago. Story written and read by Karen Ajay. Father Edward F. Flaherty Jr. has spent much of his 102 years serving others in one form or another. Last June, the retired Jesuit priest and former Regis instructor finally got the recognition he deserved for some of that service, treating injured soldiers during World War II. In a surprise ceremony at Regis's Xavier Jesuit Center residence, Congressman Ed Perlmutter presented Flaherty with seven long-overdue medals, including the Army Good Conduct Medal, the Asiatic Pacific Campaign Medal with two Bronze Service Stars, World War II Victory Medal, and the Philippine Liberation Ribbon with one Bronze Service Star. Thanks to a nudge from Brother Glenn Kerfoot at the Xavier Center, Perlmutter's office worked to procure the medals Flaherty had earned 75 years ago, but never received. The ceremony featured letters of official thanks and lofty words about courage, commitment, and selflessness from numerous dignitaries and elected officials, including Governor Jared Polis. At the ceremony, Perlmutter noted that Flaherty, born in 1918 as the Spanish flu raged, had survived not one, but two pandemics. When it was Flaherty's turn to speak, he said, Thank you. That's all I can say. Thank you for all these commendations that I don't feel worthy of accepting. Clearly, none of the many friends and former colleagues who attended the ceremony shared that opinion. Before he pinned the medals on Flaherty's chest, retired Army Major General Stephen P. Best noted that the former medic's service didn't end when he hung up his uniform, a sentiment echoed by Flaherty's representative in Congress. Perlmutter said, he has been a quiet force in our community for a very long time. The community and the state of Colorado lost that quiet force last summer as Flaherty headed reluctantly to a Jesuit retirement home in St. Louis. He said, I'll miss Colorado. It's been a wonderful place to be. In the summer of 1940, Flaherty was 22 years old with a new diploma from Rockhurst University, a Jesuit institution in Kansas City, Missouri. He had questions about what his future might hold. In September of that year, Uncle Sam gave him an answer. That year, with conflict erupting in East Asia and Hitler's armies marching across Europe, the United States instituted its first ever peacetime draft. By the end of the war in 1945, 
50 million men between the ages of 18 and 45 had registered for the draft and 10 million of them had been inducted into the military. Flaherty was among the first to have his number come up, and more than a year before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor drew the United States into the war, he was in an Army uniform. Flaherty said, I was in the medical corps. I could not conceive myself of killing another human being, even an enemy. That was something I couldn't stomach. Attached to an Army Engineering Corps, Flaherty's duty in the Pacific reads like a listing of that theater's major battle sites, Bougainville, Guadalcanal, the Philippines. Once Allied troops had secured a piece of ground, the Engineering Corps moved in, building supply roads and aircraft landing strips, and making the local water drinkable for the occupying troops. More than 75 years later, Flaherty can still see the bodies of Japanese soldiers left behind on Guadalcanal after the bloody, pivotal battle there, and the city of Manila was left in ruins. Flaherty said, I was in the Philippines when the atomic bomb was dropped, ending the war. From there, it was back home to Kansas City, where he lived with his parents, worked for Folger's Coffee Company, and once again was questioning what his future held. Flaherty said, I had always wanted to be a priest before the war. Then, after the war, like a lot of young men and young people, I was upset, disturbed. I didn't know what I wanted to do. But finally, I did decide to make the move to become a Jesuit priest. He was ordained in 1965 and then attended St. Mary's College and the University of San Francisco to earn advanced degrees. When his education was complete, he was assigned to Regis. He said, that's how I got there in 1968. At Regis, Flaherty taught religious studies, particularly scripture, church history, and the Old and New Testaments, and for a time lived in what he called the Pink Palace. Others might know it as Main Hall. After he left Regis in 1993, Flaherty served as a Lowry Air Force Base chaplain and as pastor at the Shrine of St. Anne Catholic Church in Arvada, Colorado. Regardless of his job title, Flaherty said his favorite aspect of any role, whether it was teaching or serving as pastor, was being with people something he did daily until he retired in 2017 at age 99. Last June, with his medals at last in place, Flaherty offered a few words to those gathered in what has been his hometown for the past 50-some years. He said, I hope that the spirit that invigorated us back in World War II and Korea, that that same spirit will be passed on to the younger generation today. He lamented what he considers a reverence for material things taking priority over spiritual matters in too many lives today. And the man who readily admits he doesn't like the spotlight jokingly complained that he hadn't been given any advance warning about the ceremony. He said, had I known this was coming, I would have fled to the mountains. Our final piece this episode is our Ask Reggie column, as written by our university mascot, Reggie, and voiced by one of our friendly campus squirrels. Dear Reggie, I have so much anxiety now. Academic stress, financial stress, COVID stress, future stress, stress that your response won't help me. I used to be so positive. Seriously. Help. Signed, stressed out. Dear stressed out, stop. Breathe. Have a donut. Anxiety can indeed be brutal. I totally understand how anxiety can be counterproductive and even paralyzing for most humans. I'm also aware how unstable the world has become, and I don't blame you for freaking out. Humans often confuse me, though, 
worrying about their future, about how they should have done something differently in the past, or letting their minds run rabid, in circles, a million miles a minute, going nowhere, kind of like I often do. You see, as a fox, I have the luxury of being spontaneous, free-spirited, and natural. In my opinion, all that matters is that you do what makes your tail wag. Explore more. Be open to everything and never stop trying. Focus on biting off tiny bits of progress and take challenges one at a time. I wish I could convince more people to just go with the flow and soak up life's little perfect imperfections. What are we all racing toward anyway? Security? Stuff? Who plants these poisonous weeds in our heads? Growth comes from life's challenges. Invite them in. Take a chance. If it doesn't work, try something else. No biggie. I'll even take it a step further. The way I see it, accomplishments are not what makes our lives matter. Curiosity gives meaning. Spontaneity gives meaning. Meaning comes out of just being alive on this big blue marble. Think about that. You're not here to live up to impossible standards that you've stuffed into your brain, so don't force it. You weren't plopped on this planet to be perfect. Where's the fun in that? Life is joy. Life is not knowing stuff, and I know so little. I should go to college. Am I encouraging you to give up on everything? To sacrifice a comfortable existence? To live in a van down by the river? No. I'm asking you to take in the big picture when you feel the pressure and anxiety coming on. Recognize the stress, embrace it, and then bite it in the jugular. Life is an education. An education as unique as every living thing. And you grow through perseverance. You will come out on top. Or not. It doesn't really matter. Just enjoy the ride and the donuts. I love you all. Reggie. Thank you for listening to the Quad Pod. The entire issue of this magazine is available online at regis.edu slash magazine. See images from the stories you've just heard, indulge in a bit of Regis nostalgia, read more about the inspiring accomplishments of students, faculty, and alumni, and learn what's new and exciting on campus. Subscribe or follow the Quad Pod wherever you get your podcasts if you'd like further audio versions of the Regis University magazine to show up in your feed.